0: Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. During her lifetime, Jessica Mitford was called many things. A subversive, a muckraker, a mischief maker, etc. But J.K. Rowling probably landed upon the best descriptor when she named her, quote, the most influential writer. Though born to a life of privilege in Britain, at the age of 19, Jessica left it all to elope to the Spanish War with Winston Churchill's nephew. Ultimately, she settled in America, where she became a civil rights activist and investigative journalist par excellence. As Leslie Brody notes in her new book, Irrepressible, The Life and Times of Jessica Mitford, Mitford was yoked to every important event for nearly all of the 20th century. And for that reason, she not only was defined by the history she witnessed, but by bearing witness she helped to define that history. Today I'm going to be speaking with Leslie Brody about Irrepressible. Hi, Leslie. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I'd like to kick things off by having you just tell a little bit about yourself.
1: Great. Okay. Well, I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I guess I should start in New York City. That's where I was born. And um, I had the, what I think, great opportunity to grow up when... um, New York and Greenwich Village was really popping in the, you know, with counterculture influences in the late 60s and early 70s. I always wanted to be a beatnik, and I was a hippie, and I was a um, a poet, I thought, very early on. Um, that really didn't pan out, but, uh, you know, I was always very fascinated with writing and with writers and always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I grew up in New York, on Long Island, actually. And um, at 17, I, uh, I sort of followed my heart. Everyone I knew was dropping out of college. This was in the early 70s, so I didn't even start. I uh, called my father up. I was supposed to go to Goddard College. You know, that was experimental enough for me. And, and um, and you know, my parents didn't object, but I called up and I said, I'm not going to college. I'm going to Cuba. I didn't go to Cuba, but I didn't go to college for many years either. I started living in various communes and I was always the house writer, the house poet. And then I started writing for underground newspapers and I traveled across the country writing for one paper or another. There was always a place to live. You know, the papers were always in communes. And I ended up in California, in San Francisco, in the as I said in the early '70s, it's a brilliant place to be, and I went from there to Europe. Always thinking I, you know, wanted to keep writing. There was never anything else I wanted to do as a career. So I've been a writer in every kind of form. I've written for newspapers. I've written many reviews. Um, i I worked in the theater for many years. That was sort of a, a big portion of my life, working as a playwright, and um, I did a number of jobs for magazines, I worked for L for a while as a book reviewer and um always kind of on the counterculture side of life the that was the bohemian world always attracted me never really made a living from my writing and I decided to go back to because cool, I was sort of feeling like a bit of a fraud. You know, I was writing all these reviews and I hadn't really read, um, oh, no, I read widely, but I hadn't read deeply, I would say. So I went to, back to college. I finished my BA finally, and then I went on to my master's and I got a doctorate. And um, after that, I found a job and now I work. Um, as a university professor, which shocked everyone who knew me early on, even my dad, who said, from where you came from, this is a shock. And, um, he didn't mean, you know, out of the gutter. He meant, <laughs> well, I was such a hippie. How could I ever settle down and be a university professor? And, um, and I, the first book that I finished was a memoir, which, uh, really looked at growing up in the counterculture and in new york and with my family and my dad again voiced his opinion at that point he said well you're a good writer but you took a lot of license and i had the opportunity to say you gave me that license because they really did they they were very tolerant of um, the kind of choices i made and um here i am today having written that memoir which was Red Star Sister and then I wrote um a collection of essays called Motel of the Mind with my husband Gary Amdahl who is also a writer and um um he wrote some of the essays I wrote some of the essays uh and then um I just published my most recent book actually it came out in paperback this past October and uh, was published the year before in hardcover The Life and Times of Jessica Irrepressible, The Life and Times of Jessica Mitford, so
0: I think that brings
1: you up to date yes.
0: My next question is um what drew you to biography in general and the story of Jessica Mitford in particular, but now that i 've heard your life story, I feel like <laughs> there are very clear parallels here
1: um, well, you know i I when I was thank you, yes, there are um when I was younger i um I was really charmed by her very rebellious and funny voice. That's the voice that I wanted. Um, of course, I couldn't have it because I didn't grow up in an aristocratic family in England with, you know, six sisters and a brother and, you know, eccentric family members. Um, but I could try for my own rebellious and funny voice. And in any case, I was just delighted to discover that she also had left home at seventeen and set off to change the world on a utopian model. Um, uh, I would say that you know when i came to san francisco i discovered her um, that i discovered that she was living there i mean i had read her work and i was fascinated by her and when i was in san francisco she was something of a doyen. Um, you know it's a at um, the center of a constellation of artists and politicos and radicals and you know what happened at jessica midford's house was the news you know and the gossip in the community that i inhabited and um, and i got an opportunity to Get a job at the San Francisco College of Mortuary Science. Um, I was the librarian there. And um, if you read Jessica Midford's work, you know that her first big book was *The American Way of Death*, in which she essentially eviscerated the San Francisco College of Mortuary Science. Excuse uh, pun. And she, she. Um, was their enemy? She was their sworn enemy. So I felt like I was a spy in the House of Love, and I would wander around looking for secret documents that you know I could somehow pass over to to Jessica Midford. But I never found them. In fact, I just sort of would sit there in the library for days on end. Nobody ever came in. It was the last gasp of that place, and it closed soon after. But um, it sort of made me feel that I had a connection to her, and I have always. Um, you know really enjoyed her work i love that she was she was a participant in and and witnessed great historical tides a civil rights activist a communist an american radical and a rebel a rebel in her life and um, in in her culture
0: I do love the idea of this British woman being an American radical. I think that's great.
1: (laughs) Yes. I mean, to such an extent that the United States government took her passport away, her American passport away, and she was, you know, uh, forbidden to travel for many years and thought that she never would get it back, in fact, until the McCarthy years, uh, they're called, I suppose, that era ended, and uh, the Supreme Court made decisions that insisted that Americans citizens were entitled to their passports and nobody could hold them back.
0: So there are a lot of books on various Mitfords, but could you just give us a brief overview of the family and the dynamic and and Jessica's place within the family?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, so, uh, Lord and Lady Reedsdale uh, were <laughs> classic eccentric characters. Um, we know them as eccentrics because Their first daughter, Nancy Mitford, who is a very, became a very well-known novelist of social manners, um, characterized them in in her books. You know, she gave them different names, but she really wrote these, what were essentially, um, biographies, small biographies of her, her family members in her novels. And, um, the, her father was very kind of snarky and, um an unyielding but the children loved him he was um you know known for making really unusual pronouncements and being incredibly grumpy and and um and yet he would play these games with them and everyone the most famous game that everyone remembers is that um the, the children hunt the child hunt where he would set his his children off to run and send the bloodhounds after them as if they were you know some as if they were foxes and um you know everyone of course is outraged by that but apparently the kids enjoyed that and the dogs were their friends so you know they weren't worried about being caught by them and um the mother was, um, I think a rather heroic figure despite her really quirky and unfortunate politics. She tended towards um high conservatism and then fascism when one of her daughters also became a fascist. Well, actually two of them did, but the one who um we will concentrate on more was Unity. Well, actually let's go let's go chronologically. Nancy is the novelist. She later moved to Paris. She um wrote biographies, really um type biographies, but they were also popular. People loved to read them about French aristocrats. And also she wrote one of my favorite is Voltaire in Love. And um and mentioned Diana, who was known and and Nancy's born in nineteen thirteen, Diana a few years later, um, these were the beauties of the Roaring Twenties, the bright, young things. They were friends with writers and um, artists, and they were photographed for their beauty. In fact, the photographs taken of them really represents some of the, you know, the first opportunities um, for photography to be used uh, as, the, you know, kind of in a, par- in a sort of a way that 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 we're familiar with now where celebrities are followed all the time by by um, photographers, and um, they had so many pictures taken of them that they influenced fashion they influenced um, like the kind of styles that people you know aspired to and um, and Diana was right in the center of that she um, she was friends with, you know, Noah Coward and Bois and, you know, all painters and writers as I said. Anyway, she was first married to a Guinness, so she was a millionaire, yes, and then she divorced the Guinness husband and married, well, first she had a huge affair with Oswald Mosley, who was the... Um, leader of the British fascist party and this is you know we're entering the 30s here and Oswald Mosley is getting a lot of attention um you know he's friends with Hitler he thinks Hitler's a great you know uh, <laughs> a leader and influence and he thinks you know fascism would be a good thing for England and Diana's his first lady and they have Then the next sister is unity um and unity Actually, I missed a sister, Pam. People often miss her. She was the quiet one they call, like, some kind of dormant Mexican volcano, you know. (laughs) She she was very, she had different interests. She was interested often in farming, and uh, she raised kind of unusual cattle. She traveled quite a bit. She had an interesting life, too, but... um, uh, she is known for not making a big deal out of it. She just did her thing. Meanwhile, the other sisters were very, were commonly in the news. They liked being at the center of attention, particularly Unity. Okay, so Unity came after Diana, and Unity fell in love with Hitler. There's no other way of saying it. She's like a Manson girl. She stalked him. <laughs> she went to Germany, and she went where Hitler would be, and he took notice of the very pretty um, you know, English ingenue, And she became part of his inner circle. So there's Diana and Unity, the fascists, right? And then the next daughter is Jessica. And Jessica became a communist when she was young. She was fascinated by communism. She saw that communism was the form, the organized entity that would combat fascism. And those, of course, you know, two incredibly strong political movements and tides of the 20th century and what she wanted to do was grow up run away to the east end of london and be a communist then live in a bedstead. and um and much of that came true yeah, actually, actually did it. <laughs> and then one more sister and that's Debo, who's the youngest sister and Debo um became um The Duchess of Devonshire, and she's the one surviving uh, sister today. And they had a a brother, too, who died in World War II, probably way more than you wanted to know. I
0: don't know. They're they're all so fascinating. We have to know about them. (laughs) So you mentioned that J.K. Rowling described um, Jessica as a self-taught socialist, and that she really, like, even as a young child in the picture, she just looks like she's not happy to be an aristocrat. Can you talk a bit about how she was so different from her sisters and where this desire to leave, that kind of fly the coop must have come from?
1: Well, she was an autodidact. She just read voraciously. Um, and, you know, the books that she read, uh, you know, she, many people could read the same books, but the conclusions she drew were, were was that there was um, a class war going on and that she was on the wrong side of history. And she objected to her family's privilege and eventually she repudiated it. She said, um, you know, I want to be, I want to improve the world. I'm not interested in the power, the militarism, the exclusivity that fascism seems to um, perpetuate. I want a world in which people are are equal, where people are respected, where everyone has a job, and I'm willing to work for it. I don't want to be a dizzy debutante. I want to be a worker or someone who can influence that kind of um, political society, I want some cloud in that world. I'm going to start by, well, what she did, I mean, she might have done it many different ways, but she met um, her cousin, who was the kind of well-known rebel at that time. His name was Esmond Romilly. They were second cousins, and he had run away from home himself to fight in the Spanish Civil War against fascism. And, of course, Decca, as she was known to her family, was fascinated by this cousin and um, you know the two of them worked at meeting one another. you know they had to kind of go about it in various ways because the family certainly didn't want them to meet one another. they thought they would be a bad influence on each other and um, but they did they had dinner at a mutual relation they immediately clicked, and midway through the dinner. Um, you know, Jack is leaning over to 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 Esmond and saying, "You know, are you going back to the Spanish Civil War? If you do, would you please take me with you?" They <laughs> they both went away together, and initially, you know, they were attracted, but they didn't know it was going to be a love affair, and it became one almost immediately, and they married. Um, and let's see, so they went to the Spanish Civil War first. Where Decca worked as um a kind of assistant journalist for a while, kind of learning the trade and um and Esmond was uh you know working also as a journalist. He'd also written a book about uh the spanish Civil War, one of three books he wrote and um he, he was like he was nineteen at the time he wrote three books before he was twenty four
0: So they moved back to London after the Civil War, correct? And that's where they had their daughter, Julia? That's right. right. Um, after the Spanish
1: Civil War, they moved to London. Uh, they had a child who unfortunately died at six months from um, after a measles epidemic and she'd become infected and so you're sad. And then they were, you know, heartbroken, forlorn, and also it looked to them as if, um, England couldn't make up its mind. You know, they were, England was talking appeasement and the, the you know, Hitler's um influence was growing and he was um, you know, occupying large portions of Europe and and it was really a matter of, you know, is England going to stand and fight? They just they didn't know if they and and they didn't know what was going to happen and they decided they would go to America and just, you know, take a little time, look around. America, of course, was not involved in the war yet, and it would be years before it did become involved. Um, and But they were very interested in what was going on, um, you know, with the New Deal and with um, the, the governments in, in America and with Roosevelt, and there was a political tide there that they sort of wanted to take a look at. So there they went.
0: And that's really where she began writing. I think they, they wrote a series of articles together as they traveled around the country, right? That's right. Yeah.
1: They did. They were like a screwball comedy mm-hmm. team. Um, you know, wealthy, uh, you know, young people who just kept getting in and out of scrapes. And and the articles are very funny because um, on one hand, it's like, you know, the, the smarty-pants English aristocrats is almost always getting conned by the Americans, and the American public
0: loved these
1: stories.
0: And she was still in touch with her family while they were in America, correct? Yeah. She was writing to Unity a lot, right? I'm trying to remember. Yes, well, well, Unity
1: was her... Strangely, you know, they were separated only by a couple of years. Unity was the sister she loved the most, and the sister who, um, you know, she... She would lose very soon at the the as when England finally declared war on Germany. Unity was apparently so conflicted that um, between the two places, Germany and England, that she attempted suicide. She shot herself in the head, and the, she didn't die. The bullet lodged there, and um, it would be ten years before she would die, apparently from the bullet moving at some point. Um, But she became very childlike. She lost a lot of her uh, brain capability and became, um, you know, had the the mind of an eight-year-old child, apparently. And Jessica never saw her again after she left for America.
0: And Romilly died um, as well when he joined up with the Royal Canadian Air Force and went to war once Canada entered the war.
1: That's correct, yes. And he was lost over, just a, oh dear, a few days before Pearl Harbor, he was lost over the English Channel. Um, His plane went down. He became a navigator. He was flying um, bombing missions for uh, the Canadian Air Force, but in England. And his plane went down, and that was um, how he died. It was very tragic.
0: So at this point, Jessica's in her early 20s, right? Mm-hmm. and she's a widow in America with one child. No, she has mm-hmm. no children.
1: Right? Uh, no, 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 she yeah. has one, she right. has a daughter. They had yeah. um, a, another daughter together, Constancia, who everyone calls Dinky, <laughs> and um, that daughter was, um, I, I think, about uh, nine months old or so, almost a year, probably, when um, when Esmond was lost.
0: Mm-hmm. So what did she do then as a widow? Well, um,
1: hmm. she she got a job as a government girl, um, which was the name given to a lot of the women who took over the jobs that were available in Washington D.C. once the war um, really got underway, and many men joined up or were drafted, and there were lots of government positions available. And women just streamed into Washington and took these very responsible jobs and really ran the government for several years. Um, And she was in the WPA. Um, I'm sorry. Did I say the WPA? I meant the OPA. Office. (laughs) All right. Well, what she did was uh, work in the Office of Price Administration. And and that was a regulatory agency where, um, you know, people... Where they they had to do a lot of things that were very un, unpleasant for much uh, many people in the public. You know, they had to keep the prices on um, on things regulated. Everything from housing to gas, how far you could drive. Um, you know, it was a, people were accused it of being a socialist entity, but it was exactly the sort of thing that was necessary to make sure that the resources would go around. And um, she loved her job she, um, you know, she met all sorts of people she'd never met previously. She was respected for the work that she did, for the most part. Of course, a lot of people didn't like her telling them what to do. But, um, and she met her another uh, person who would be very important in her life at the agency. She met a lawyer named Robert Truehoff, named Bob, who would become um, her very good friend. And then eventually they would marry. He was a labor lawyer. And a, um, and he worked at, you know, writing the regulations for, uh, for that organization. And they would go out on, um, <laughs> they would go on these escapades together to make sure that people weren't abusing, uh, the use of oil, of gas, or, um, uh, they would do the stakeout in front of clubs to see that people were doing any pleasure driving. They were having a wonderful time in Washington, D.C. together. And Bob is a a brilliant man who came from Brooklyn uh, originally, from an American Jewish family, and um, had gone to Harvard. And he was not able to join the Army. um, He had uh, gone to enlist but he he was not um, inducted.
0: (laughs) And then they married and moved to Oakland, and that's how she wound up in California, right?
1: That's right. That's right. That was where she lived for the rest of her life. She spent 40 years in Oakland. Wow. Yeah, and really at the center of everything. And and so when she was, um, she went from the OPA to, um, she really always wanted to be a journalist. And, you know, these tragedies kept occurring, and the war intervened, and she was doing a little writing. Um, Eventually, when she got to, California, she and Bob were both members of the Communist Party at that point, and Jessica had a um, sort of really valuable position and um, she was just an astonishing um, fundraiser, I would say, but she was always a rebel, and she was always being pulled up in front of tribunals on charges for things like joking and not taking things seriously and um, I have to make a um, observation that The Communist Party in Northern California, very far away from the Communist Party that you imagine in New York City, and even further from Europe and Russia. You know, it was more like an intentional community. People took care of one another's children. They ate, you know, communal dinners. Um, But they did have very strong feelings about uh, the economy and how to share the wealth essentially, and they had lots of educational meetings um, and at that point, Decca and Bob both felt again that this was an organization that could defeat fascism and um, could support people who were persecuted and discriminated against, and they found in northern California there was an incredible amount of racism and um, and they and Bob became very. Active particularly in um, defending African Americans against uh, discrimination, and so he became a civil rights lawyer in addition to being a labor lawyer.
0: They were both involved in the Willie McGee trial, right?
1: Yes, mm-hmm. um, yes. What was um, in that? Well, um, the second was a uh, Willie McGee was eventually proven guilt I'm, I'm sorry, proven innocent after several trials of um being accused of being uh, he's a, a young black man who was accused of murder and um there was a lot riding on his conviction for the public um the prosecutor in Oakland and it was um it was just a very political case. And Decca worked as a Investigator. This is one of the most wonderful moments for me of of her life. I just love seeing this young, quite she was always very beautiful, young, beautiful British expat um, driving around in you know kind of really rough areas of Oakland, trying to find witnesses who would speak on behalf of Willie McGee to help his trial. So she's like a this kind of um really unusual private detective. And she had a sort of sidekick, um, uh, well, it's not a sidekick, but someone, who, yeah, another man who also worked for um, the People's uh, Daily World, the communist paper in town. And he was um, uh, an African-American from Mississippi. And they were kind of this partnership. And they wrote the work together, and um, you know they were kind of, they became rather well known in the area for you know really finding the people they were looking for, and they were just sit in the bars forever, waiting for people to show up, and, <laughs> and that's how she spent uh, you know a good portion of her time when she was working on the <laughs> Willie McGee case. <laughs>
0: So in 1960, her first book came out, Huns and Rebels. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, um, okay, so uh, 1960, uh, they have just endured a, 10 years of um, American persecution and discrimination against people who were Marxists. And, you know, a lot of them, and so there were McCarthy trials, um, and then when McCarthy was deposed, essentially, and um, there were, you know, HUAC trials. And um, the idea, the FBI was very intent on breaking the Communist Party, and they succeeded. At the same time, the Communist Party was doing everything within its power to, um, you know, (laughs) to break itself up. To, you know, they just were completely wrong-footed. They made all sorts of bad choices, and they became irrelevant, essentially, um, certainly to a lot of the, um, the the issues that mattered most to Jessica Mitford At this point, it's 19... I'd say she left the party, and sort of, so did um, Bob in 1958. So what's going on in 1958? In the U.S., the most important thing seems to be the civil rights struggle. It's really starting to heat up, but it isn't going to happen. It's not going to explode nationally until the 60s. So both Bob and Decca are vanguard members of the civil rights movement. And um, she, when, when she left the party, she also left her job. And she could not find another job because every time she would try to find uh, um, work, the FBI would, you know, kind yeah. of FBI agents would wander in and talk to her bosses and say, oh, well, you don't want this communist to be working for you. And she would lose her job. So um, she said, well, you know, we've got to take a break here. I have always wanted to look through all the letters that my first husband, Esmond, wrote to me and put them into some kind of organized form for my daughter. And um, so that's what she decided to do. At that time, they also had um, they had Dinky and another son named Ben, or Benji as they called him. Um, they had lost another child, Nick. He had died. Oh, such a sad story. He had died when he was 10. He was hit by a bus when he was riding a bicycle um, on a newspaper route. Uh, it was very sad. And it had really, you know, it had just staggered her and Bob and made um it really complicated and hard for them to decide what to do next. But they just they 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 went forward and, and she decided this was she was gonna write a book. Um, I'm kind of compressing time here, but yes. but uh, she did decide. She started with the letters, and then she was having such a good time, and she just started to tell stories about her youth. And so Hans and Rebels is about growing up in England and coming to the U.S. and working in um, Washington, and it ends when Esmond dies.
0: So what tensions did that create with her and her family? Um,
1: well... I would say they were used at that time to being written about because Nancy had already um you know was was frequently writing novels about her family um, uh, the tension was kind of family rivalry the mother was the father died the mother was very much um she was kind of sick and tired of everyone writing about her, but she was resigned to it um uh the sisters were you know, they kind of fluttered about and uh said, Well that's not me or that's the lie or that's you know, or but they were all their you know they're supreme aristocrats really, you know. I mean they they did a lot of their complaints, you know, sort of voce and um you know, and and uh and they gave her a kind of surface approval. Except for uh well let's see, fifty eight. Unity had died. Um, already, in in that 58, and she never, and Jessica never spoke to Diana again after World War II. Never. Well, never again after she left for America. She just, uh, she forgave unity to some extent because she thought unity not only was wrong, but was mad at the hatter. (laughs) Um, And, and, you know, and then she had brain damage. So, um, she always returned in her, it was very hard for her to um to publicly you know forgive unity when the war was so raw um, but she always loved her sister um, she did not forgive diana for siding with the fascists um and she never never spoke to her again until the very end of nancy's life when in the late 70s when she and uh and diana and pam And Debo, the remaining sisters, went to care for Nancy, who was dying in Paris. So in
0: 1961, it was kind of this Forrest Gump moment where Jessica was um, covering Southern Attitudes for Esquire during the Freedom Rides, right? That's right. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that episode? Because I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? It's, um,
1: uh, so, um, this is the, the moment. Decco went down south and she always been really fascinated by the South and had a hate love or love hate relationship with it. And um and she ended up being in Montgomery, Alabama on the day that the Freedom Riders arrived. And so um she managed um, to um, to to attend the church service uh where uh, when Martin Luther King also came to proclaim the, uh, you know, to defend and and this and um, proclaim the Freedom Riders, you know, really heroes of um, of resistance. I'll tell you what. I have a little bit of a piece here I could read. Just a short. Sure. It's about the Mom- Montgomery Church um, event. Inside the packed church, it becomes stiflingly hot and humid. Tear gas, which the marshals had thrown to deter the increasingly hostile crowd, had floated back in, just slightly diluted, to settle on the hair and eyes and skin of the congregation. It stung the eyes, had a terrible sour smell, and made everything even more claustrophobic. All night, people urged one another to keep singing. Though there were only half as many people inside as out, every pew was full. There were pockets of chaos inside, but not panic. Once the tear gas drifted in, people rushed to the sinks to rinse their eyes into the basement and closets to cover and protect their children. Church deacons closed any windows still open, which cut down on the ventilation and spiked up the heat even more. Help would come, the deacons counseled. Martin Luther King had arrived from Atlanta to address the church. Stepping outside to gauge the situation, he was the target of rocks and crude taunts. Back in the sanctuary, he assured the congregation that the marshals were still in place, but he couldn't guarantee that their line would hold. Rioters had begun tossing lighted kerosene-soaked wads to the church door. The marshals, who wore no gas masks, had fired all their tear gas until it ran out, many succumbing themselves, and still the mob of segregationists and thugs advanced. They beat on the doors and shattered windows with bricks and rocks. A car had already been burned out front. The car belonged to Jessica Midford, who had arrived in Montgomery that week to research a humor article on Southern Social Customs for Esquire magazine. Her sympathies were wholeheartedly with the gathering civil rights movement. Midford and her friend, another longtime activist, Virginia Durr, had witnessed the previous day's white riot at the bus station. Durr cautioned Jessica against attending the mass meeting. The town was a tinderbox, but Midford, hell-bent, Durr said, was onto to a great story she'd seen it with her own eyes she couldn't wait she kept saying let's go let's go dressing in her southern costume a lovely sort of green hat with chiffon on it and pearls around her neck and white gloves and a green chiffon dress midford drove to the first baptist church with peter ackerberg a young white student who was who had who would soon become a freedom fighter writer himself and he was attending he, he was he'd been attending antioch and he He'd come down there to observe it, first of all, but now he was um, this is I'm um, parasitical here, <laughs> but now he had joined, he was actually joining the freedom Riders writing of her experience later, Midford joked for a breath of fresh air, I went to the mass meeting in the black community where Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was to speak with the Freedom Riders. Actually, the air was disturbingly filled with tear gas at one point, and no one quite knew if we'd get out of there alive in the heat and anxiety of that moment, midford and others thought of the victims of Nazis who'd been burned alive in barns and synagogues, her conversations with her neighbors ran to how they might fight to escape. In the letter written many years later, she says, surely nobody with a spark of imagination, common sense, could not be unafraid in the circumstances." I'd like to quote from the work of Sally Belfrage, her friend, in Freedom Summer, describing fear as a condition like heat or night or blue eyes. You had to learn to arrange your fear as a parallel element in the day or night to exist beside it and try to function without its interference.
0: She did have an uncanny way of, of wandering into amazing stories.
1: She did. She did. And, you know, it's interesting, when I think about that Sally Belfrage, um, well, one of the, I think, takeaways to get from studying Jessica Midford is um, the, how, how important friendship is to her. And she wasn't a moaner. She didn't whine. Um, uh, she had this circle of women friends, for example, who remained close over their lives. And the story of these friends was one of dedication, of love, of heroism. They were all committed to making the world a better and fairer place. And all of them risked quite a lot to put their ideas into action.
0: So this brings us to around 1963 and the American Way of Death, which is one of of my favorite books, though it's incredibly morbid, obviously.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, um, Morbid, but
0: very funny. Yeah.
1: Would you think? Do
0: you think? No, extremely funny. (laughs) I think that's her skill as a writer. She writes about something that's deeply disturbing and gross at times, but does it so expertly. It's just extraordinary.
1: Yes, and many of her funniest lines are associated with her work on the American way of death. Um I love, I love when she begins dissension has begun to spread in the ranks of the living." She wrote, "Unfortunately for the undertakers, it would seem there's little popular support for the theory that a fine funeral is America's first line of defense and the highest expression of patriotism." <laughs> she, you know, she really invented this concept to at that, that, you know, the American Way of Death, which is, of course, this great title, was the equivalent to that kind of 1950s, everybody have a new TV and a, a new, you know, washer and dryer and a new car with, um, you know, with fins. And, you know, that 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 vision of America was equivalent to the vision that was being promoted by undertakers or morticians, that we must have a very, you know, uh, fancy and and, and grand funeral for you know those of us who could afford it and even those who could not afford it you have to borrow you have to get that money because you must keep up with the joneses in death as well as in life (laughs) how did she what brought her to write
0: about that subject
1: well i I think it she says, and um she writes that it was her husband Bob who first brought the subject to her attention, and he had been working for um, several unions that had union ben- death benefits. And because um, he saw morticians as predatory, they would the morticians would like hone in on those death benefits and say, "Well, you've got exactly what you need for a really great funeral," and, um, and that would be the end of the death benefits. For the widow and the children. They would spend it all on a funeral, and that, of course, is disgusting. So he um, became part of a a community uh, activism effort in Northern California to start a uh, funeral co op. And that was, um, that's not a new idea, but it it happened in immigrant communities, you know, in, in different places in America earlier. Everybody would put in some money, and then when someone died, they, you know, would use that pool of money to bury the person. Um, so they were trying to do this on a larger scale, and to, um, and they were being, you know, <laughs> opposed by uh, the funeral industry. Has a huge lobby and a lot of power. And um, so Bob said, "Well, there has to be an article about this," and he tried to convince Jackie to write the article. She didn't. And feel comfortable doing that and the the article was written by someone else but she was quoted in it and it's um and her quotes are all great and you know it's it's a racket. Why can't we have funerals without fins, she said um in the article. And then when a little bit later um the article came out and there was so much interest in it. I mean it was an enormously popular article. People were really ready to hear this about funerals. And um you know <clears throat> excuse me he um bob again you know went to deck and said you know why don't you do this this is just you know your sensibility you know so much about this you've been working on it too and she said okay i'll do it but you have to help me if to take a year off and essentially they wrote it together um did a lot of the research for her, um, and she, you know, it's her voice, her funny, very funny voice, but I will say that, um, her friends, the friends of hers who, who I interviewed, um, agreed almost across the board that one of the reasons she felt deeply about the issue was because of the funeral of her own son, Nikki, who had died, as I, as I said, when he was very, you know, a few years before when he's been, um. He had received a, a very grand funeral, and she and Bob had both been, you know, revolted by it, but they had been so numb and so grief-struck struck, that they couldn't um, really act at that time. So in some ways, it was a response to
0: that. What did I ask you, what sources did you find most helpful for the book? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? You kind of went oh, out Of course, I'm there. sorry. What sources did you find most helpful for the book? Who were you um, able to interview? <laughs>
1: Oh my goodness. Well, I was able, I had a really, I was very fortunate, um, though so I felt a bit like I was, you know, the black widow because I would interview friends of hers and they would die afterwards. I honestly, I, <laughs> this is a terrible thing to say, <laughs> sometimes a year would pass, but I was really fortunate to be able to, re- um, to interview, for example, her very good friend, Pili Dilap, And, um, and who was a wonderful artist and part of her very close circle. Um, um, I was able to uh, interview Marge Franz, who's still um, surviving. And if you can read quite a lot about Marge's uh, life in, in the book as well. Um, and um, let's see. Uh, well, you know, I mean, her, her children were very, very, very helpful. They didn't die, I promise you. <laughs> They, they, but they've been hugely supportive, um, over the years that I've been working on this book. I mean, it's about a seven year project. And, um, also her sister, uh, Deba was helpful. Um, she gave a nice, you know, review of the book. That it, And, um, uh, you know, her friends, she's so many friends. And, um, People loved her. I mean, as I said, she, friendship is such an important part of this book. I think another really important part of the book is um, an observation of what an important influence she was as a journalist. And she wrote when, I think, daily print journalism had this enormous influence, and it seemed almost unimaginable that such a mighty fortress would fall. You know, Becker mm-hmm. um, wrote in this time and place when... Everyone in public life and the workforce read some part of a daily paper and columnists had clout. And, you know, people would just read the huge newspapers on, on Sunday. It was just a given that you would make your way through the New York Times, for example. And then do the crossword puzzle. Some people still do, but it's not as common.
0: Mm. That kind of ties into my next question, which is, what do you see as her legacy as a writer?
1: Um, well, she was her legacy is, is, is that she had she was a very successful journal investigative journalist and what she did was kind of put together her courage and her humor. Um and she attacked the abuses of power. She also had a sense of fun and joie de vivre. And um you know, as we were talking about her friends, and everyone I interviewed agreed, um she didn't care to be thought brave, but they thought she, gutsy was the word that um, that they that she would have liked best. And you know, I meet people all the time who say they wish echo was here. They miss her insight, and humor. She was really brave. She was really sophisticated, and had this nuanced sense of politics. And I would say that those um, there isn't anyone really right now just like her. But there's people. I think Barbara Ehrenreich does a kind of um, you know. Um, in depth investigation, but, but in terms of the wit and humor, you know, you'd have to look to John Stewart or Stephen Colbert. Or Michael Moore does the muckraking. So there's lots in, of people who, um, I think were influenced by her. It's interesting. Um, uh, Christopher Hitchens was one of her, uh, her friends and he adored her. Um, and he does talk about her in, in his books, uh, as well, but I'm, um, you know, she, <laughs> No one knows what she would have thought about his switching back and his political switching back and forth, but she really did love him. In fact, um, at one point she gave him a gift that was a little um, children's guillotine that could chop the heads. This is the kind of humor she had.
0: <laughs> it was a toy, <laughs> it chops the heads off people. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Jessica Mitford. I know it's a cruel question to ask an author when your books only just come out, but do you have any idea what you're going to be writing next?
1: Um, actually, I'm writing fiction. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm working on a, a, a novel that um, has a little bit of, um, it's a generational novel, and I, I'm kind of, again, I'm interested in, in rebellion. I'm interested in the counterculture. I'm interested in defying authority. So it starts, my characters are, Starting in um, the 20s, and we're kind of moving towards the 70s, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of um, you know, there's a lot of anti-authority material in there, and uh, I'm kind of very I'm I'll just end by saying I'm very interested in um, in the the coup in Chile and um, American influence. There. It's a political novel. Oh,
0: wow. How exciting. Do you have any idea when it's going to come out? I have no idea when it will be finished and be <laughs> written, <laughs> but I have a title. Yeah, and you have a great yes. idea, so I think you have
1: it there. See, my title is, uh, the title is, Is That Legal? Uh, <laughs> a History of the 20th Century. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> thank you. Of course. Well, thank you so much. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me to to be on your program.
0: I've been talking today with Leslie Brody about Irrepressible, The Life and Times of Jessica Mitford, which is now out in paperback. I'm Olaine Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.